you guys. I am so happy to be here. Um, I, I am also slightly confused. This place is amazing and weird, right? <laughs> like, I cannot imagine working here, but I'm very glad to be standing here. Um, so I just really quickly want to follow up on the video thing and tell you what that actually means. So we are, um, World Coffee Research is going to be launching a video for International Coffee Day with people talking about the future of coffee, what your hopes are, what your fears are, what your um, excitements are about that. This is like a fun project. It's not anything scary. And they have an absolutely amazing recording studio upstairs. So. Um, if you want to sign up to participate in that, please do. We have a really cool thank you gift that I am not going to tell you what it is. You just have to come find out, but it's really cool. Um, and the sign up is at the front desk. So it's just like five or 10 minutes in front of a camera and I'll ask you some questions and that's really all it is. Um, yeah, so, so that's what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about the future of coffee. Um, and before I do that, I'm going to do that really dorky thing where I take a picture of you guys because I'm very happy to be here <laughs> and this place is so cool. So I'm going to do it. The light is terrible. Just pretend you're having fun. You got it. It's not going to hurt. There you go. Okay. Thank you. Um, so the future of coffee. I work for an organization called World Coffee Research. We do agricultural research on coffee and we've been around for five years now and we're really entering um, a deep planning phase now for what our next five or 10 years are gonna look like and the kind of work that we're gonna be doing. So we're thinking a lot about this topic right now. What is the future of coffee agriculture? Um, what are the challenges that are coming? What are the opportunities that are coming? What are the confounding factors that might be part of all these discussions? Um, so I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about some of the things that we've been thinking about and some of the things that we've been discussing um, and open up uh, the discussion. I think after the end, we'll have some time for questions and answers to your questions about what, what some of that future might look like. Um, so I wanna start thinking about 2050. It sounds like a long time from now. I think there's a new Blade Runner movie coming out that's like Blade Runner 2050, right? And Blade Runner is like super futuristic. But actually, 2050 is not very far away. Um, I am going to be 69 in 2050. I hope that I will be rounding up the end of my career, my long, successful career in coffee, I hope. Um, who knows, maybe by then we'll all be working till we're like 85 and I won't actually be ending my career at all. I'll just be right like at the peak of it. Um, I can, I'm guessing from looking at the audience that many of you are around my age or even a little bit younger. So 2050 is inside the span of your professional lives, your working lives. Um, and hopefully many of those working lives will be in coffee. So thinking about 2050, it feels far away, but it's also like very much inside the span of our scope of concern, right? So um, I don't know, like maybe some of you will be working in coffee jobs that haven't even been invented yet, right? Because it's like the future and we don't even know what the future is gonna hold. So 2050 is the kind of, the flag in the ground we're gonna talk about today. So here's a fun fact about 2050. If coffee consumption continues to grow at the pace that it is growing at now and has been for the last few years, it's about 3% per year um, globally, we would need to double world production by 2050. So that's like basically just over 30 years from now. So double world production. 
that means all the coffee produced in all the world, we have to produce double, right? That sounds very obvious. Um, but let's even shorten the time span. So 2025, that's like not that far from now. My three-year-old daughter is going to be just exiting elementary school, right? This is very, very coming up on us very quickly. We would need to produce 15 to 20% more coffee than we do now. By 2025, that's 15 to 20 million bags. That's a common uh, metric that we use for measuring global production. Um, that is the amount that Mexico and Central America together produce today. So in just a few years, we're going to have to bring online the equivalent of like 10 more countries uh, in terms of production. So how is that going to happen? How are coffee farmers going to do that? How are coffee plants going to do that? Where is all that coffee going to come from? Confounding that, by 2050, if we don't make significant um, efforts to intervene and change the, the situation on the ground, we're going to have half the amount of suitable land that we do today uh, because of climate change. So the, the climate zones that we grow coffee today are either going to be too hot and dry, in some places they'll be too wet, but the coffee plant won't be able to um, grow in many of the, the climates of the future without adaptation. So this, this is the kind of fundamental problem facing coffee agriculture. Um, and it's the reason why I like to say that I think coffee agriculture is at a crossroads right now. Um, I really want to emphasize the word agriculture, because I think it is kind of easy to forget sometimes that coffee is agriculture, that everything that you do, whether you're behind the bar, whether you work for an equipment manufacturer, whether you design awesome coffee t-shirts that I love to wear on the weekend, um, whatever it is, whatever your relationship to the coffee industry is, your ability to do your work depends on the existence of the coffee plant and that that plant and the farmer growing it both be thriving. So we're going to talk today a little bit about coffee agriculture and the challenges and the opportunities that are presented by it. So what are some of the challenges? I'm actually not going to say that much about this because I think especially given the events of the last week or two, um, I know I live in Portland and we're like being engulfed in smoke and ash from fires that are very intense because we've had the hottest, driest summer on record for the third year in a row. Um, we, I was just reading a story this morning about one of the maybe lesser appreciated um, impacts of Hurricane Harvey is on Texas agriculture. Um, Texas cotton farmers have lost, they think, 20 to 30% of their crop for the year. Um, rice farmers don't know what the impact is going to be because all of the rice hasn't been harvested yet, so it's like drying out on the top and underwater on the bottom. Um, and that is probably going to be pretty devastating for them as well. So the picture that you see here is um, showing what happens to a coffee plant when there's a drought. So the, the plant can't produce enough energy to ripen properly. And you get these kind of like desiccated um, cherries. And we know that inside the cherry is the bean. And when the cherry and the plant aren't thriving, the bean is impacted. And either the plant can't produce as much coffee as it would have otherwise, or the quality is severely com compromised. Um, so we know that in the climates of the future, we're expecting a lot more hot and dry weather, more droughts, more extreme weather. Um, too much rain is also not good for a coffee plant. Um, so this is a problem that is 
being felt by coffee farmers now. It, is, it exists in coffee agriculture as a, as a fundamental conversation that coffee farmers are having, but we know that it's going to accelerate in the years to come to the point where we think about half of the coffee land that's suitable for coffee now will not be suitable by 2050. So I'm just, this is going to be like a super downer for a minute. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we'll get to the optimistic stuff in a minute. Um, for many, many, many coffee farmers, coffee farming is not profitable enough to really justify continue doing it. So this is a coffee producer that I met in El Salvador in June, uh, Senor Ruiz. And we were just having an informal conversation as we walked around his farm. He's got a two-hectare farm. He, he's what we would consider a small holder. Um, he's not a specialty coffee producer. He sells his coffee to essentially a middleman, and it gets bulked into larger coffees, and he grows varieties that are not especially notable for their quality potential. And I asked him how much money he earned from coffee last year. I don't know what methodology he used to determine that, but his self-reported answer was $134. Like, that was his income for last year. Um, and all he does is farm coffee. He has a small subsistence plot as well. So probably his farm, he's 82, by the way, um, probably his, his sons are not interested in growing coffee, probably <laughs> partly for that reason. So his farm will probably either be sold to someone else who is interested in growing coffee or it will be turned into some other kind of farm uh, when he stops farming, which will be just in a couple years. Um, and that dynamic is playing out over a lot of coffee lands. Coffee farmers are getting older. Their sons and daughters aren't so interested in growing coffee because they can't really make a, a good living at it. Just to give you one more example, we recently did some work in um, the Democratic Republic of Congo of kind of emergent or re-emergent region called Kivu that is really investing a lot and producing some awesome specialty coffees. And we were looking at profitability of different farming systems. We looked at a few different systems, but I'm going to highlight two of them. One was um, producers who were growing coffee alone, and the other was producers who were growing coffee intercropped with ground nuts. So they have two crops that they can take to the market and sell. And you'll see that the producers that grew coffee alone earned $891 from their coffee, and it cost them $1,400 to grow it. So that includes labor costs. So they lost 40% of their investment on their coffee. Um, the producers who grew groundnuts did make a profit. They were the only group that we looked at that were making money from their coffee. They made 5% return, and it's only, if you look at the details and the numbers, it's only because groundnut prices were high. Right? Their coffee income was $1,300, but their, um, their groundnut income was more than twice that. It was $1,700. So this is a pretty important dynamic playing out across coffee agriculture. If coffee farmers can't make a living, why would they keep farming coffee? Soil fertility, this is like, you know, dirt chemistry. It's, <laughs> it's like the least sexy topic in the world. Um, but it's actually one of the most important topics in coffee agriculture because if you don't have healthy soil, you, you can't do anything. It is the limiting factor of what the plant is able to do. So if you just take a look here and just focus your eyes on the red, um, those are what the UN has called very degraded soil areas. Check it out. It's like all of Central America and Mexico. It's a big chunk of East Africa right around Ethiopia. It's uh, a lot of Indonesia. It's a lot of India. These are, these are the world's major coffee producing regions and they are, they are the regions that have the most significant soil problems. So that's something that 
is going to be a significant challenge for the future, especially this future where we're, we're hoping we want there to be double coffee production. And then there's the same old problems um, that coffee farmers have always had, diseases and pests and things like that. That's just, um, as long as there's been farming, there have been challenges with that. This is a picture of a farmer holding a leaf infected by coffee leaf rust, which is a fungus that tore through Central America starting in, in 2012 and really was pretty devastating. Um, coffee leaf rust doesn't have to be a disaster for a farmer. It can be managed, but sometimes a whole bunch of things collide and you get a perfect storm and you, you end up having an epidemic, which is what happened in Central America. Um, many coffee farmers now in that region are growing varieties that are bred to be resistant to coffee leaf rust. But just in the last year, we have been observing that that resistance is breaking down. So um, we're gonna have to find other solutions. This is really common, by the way, in agriculture little tiny life forms tend to evolve much faster than bigger life forms. So diseases and pests almost always are getting the upper hand. Like you outsmart them for a minute and then they outsmart you and then it's sort of an arms race. Um, so this is just, this is part of agriculture is this battle um, between the plant and the diseases that would like to take that plant and destroy it. <laughs> so, um, these are, these are some of the big challenges. These are not all of the challenges, but these are some of the big challenges facing co coffee agriculture. So what are the opportunities when we look ahead at, say, 2020? Um, we do agricultural research and development, so that's kind of what I'm going to focus on. Um, just to back up for a second and tell you what that is, this has been a really regular part of farming for, for the kind of full existence of modern farming, I'd say about the last 150 years. So the basic idea is that you have researchers, maybe they're breeders, maybe they're disease experts, um, maybe they work on farming equipment. They create new knowledge and new technologies. You have extension programs that, that transfer that over to farmers, and they're applied at the farm then to increase quality and yields and profitability. Usually those are the, the three things that we sort of focus on. Um, up next, you're gonna hear from Bill Ristenpart at UC Davis. UC Davis has incredible um, breeding and extension programs for a lot of crops that are grown in California, like strawberries. There's an awesome New Yorker article like two weeks ago about UC Davis's strawberry breeding program. It's super fascinating. Um, and so a lot of the stuff that we kind of just like take for granted as consumers, like you just show up at the grocery store and there's like a box of Driscoll's strawberries and it's just there, like that actually is the product of um, people and a lot of time and effort going into thinking about, well, what are the qualities that those fruits need to have in order for you to enjoy them, to, for them to be tasty and delicious and look red and perfect, and um, shipping and all the other things that go into a supply chain. I realize I'm like crushing people's idealized visions of what agriculture is to some degree whenever I talk about this, but it's a system and it has been for a very long time. Um, unfortunately, in coffee, this has not been very well organized in many places, in fact, in most places where coffee is. So there's really been a, a missing um, component of research and development and then also the extension to get it out to farmers because coffee farmers are so diverse and live in so many places, especially very rural places. Um, and often in countries where there aren't really organized political systems or systems of support for those farmers. But just to highlight like what research and development can do and what it is doing in coffee right now, um, 
researchers over the last, say, five to 10 years have been working on creating this whole new class of coffee varieties. It's, a, it's an entirely different kind of coffee variety called an F1 hybrid. And in the early trials of these, um, I'm gonna focus on one variety in particular called Centro Americano, which I'm quite sure you'll hear more about if you haven't heard of it already. Um, it has been bred to be resistant to coffee leaf rust. In the early trials, we were seeing returns of 22 to 46% yield increases. So imagine that's half again as much coffee, uh, which matters a lot if you're a coffee farmer because typically you are paid by the pound for your coffee, so quantity matters. Um, capable of scoring more than 90 points. For two years in a row now, um, Centro Americano has scored more than 90 points in multiple Cup of Excellence competitions, most recently taking second place in Nicaragua. So it has the agronomic qualities that a farmer needs, but it's also delivering like what you want, right? This amazing cup potential in the cup, when it's of course like grown carefully and processed well and all those things. Um, climate resilient. Um, we don't know the full potential of these varieties yet because they're still pretty new, but we, for example, have an early result that's showing that they are frost resistant, which is really important if you're growing. Um, frost can easily kill plants if you have a big frost at the wrong time of year. So um, that's very helpful. And because they're more productive and you can plant them, this particular variety, more densely, economic analyses were showing that they were giving farmers $1,750 extra over and above what they would have gotten with a different variety per hectare. So profitability matters a lot. So just to show you, because it's fun, I got this picture yesterday, so I dropped it in. So these are some of the F1 hybrid crosses that we are working on right now. Um, Centro Americano that I just was talking about was released for farmers in 2000. 10, 2011, so it's just starting to come into widespread production now. And when I say widespread, I mean like kind of widespread. <laughs> like you'll see, you'll start seeing it sometimes now because it takes a few years for coffee to mature and to start producing fruit and all of that. So we think it's planted on about a thousand hectares across Central America right now. So this is like, what you're looking at here are, is like the future future, like 10 to 15 years from now the results of some of these experiments might be in farmer fields. Um, so this is just showing new F1 hybrid crosses where we took one parent, two different varieties to be the mother and the father and crossed them. And the baby is the F1 hybrid and that's what we're gonna be evaluating to see how they do. And you'll notice um, that we used geisha in a lot of these crosses. That is for the cup quality potential. So we're really focusing on, we want those agronomic traits that matter to farmers that are gonna help them get what they need and we want the cup quality potential. Um, so new or renewed origins, like I think we're all very used to thinking about coffee as coming from like a few places like Ethiopia, Brazil maybe, um, Colombia, maybe there's some great terroir in um, Kenya and in you know Peru. Everybody's kind of got their favorite um, spots. But where coffee is grown in 2050 could look very different than it does today for a lot of reasons. One of them is climate. You know, what will the climate of the future be like, and where will coffee be able to grow well? Um, it could just be that a country decides like we want to produce coffee in a big way. Um, and in fact, that's what's happening in China right now. So the Chinese government is investing heavily in coffee production in Yunnan, which used to be known as a tea producing region, but there are now thousands of coffee farmers 
in Yunnan growing coffee. That's very new. They don't have a lot of production, like actual coffee coming off those farms yet, but that I guarantee you that will be different in five years. Um, Congo, I mentioned earlier, has a tremendous potential to be a specialty origin. Um, and there's a lot of investment happening in Congo right now to make that a reality. Congo actually used to produce a lot of coffee, and then they had a series of terrible civil wars that destroyed all of the coffee land. And so they're in the process of rebuilding. You're already seeing some great coffees coming out of Congo. I think you'll see more of them over the next five to 10 years as those um, development projects help that region get a foothold. Um, Zambia has five coffee farms. They're all large plantation estates. 20 years ago, they had like 400 coffee farms. So the, the country kind of disinvested in coffee and now there's an interest in reinvesting. Um, similarly, Uganda has a plan that they're kicking off this year to try to go from producing 3.5 million bags of coffee to 20 million bags with a focus on specialty coffee. They're kind of known as a Robusta producer, but they wanna move into specialty Arabica production as well. So it could just look very different. Like the coffee that my daughter drinks and considers like, you know, the best uh, could be from a place that today we don't think about as being a coffee region. And then, oh, I think I skipped. No, I didn't. Um, and then technology, technological breakthroughs. And this is the part where like, we just, we can't even imagine what the future is gonna be because there are going to be breakthroughs and innovations and inventions that we can't conceive of. Um, I like to think of the fact that like, I grew up in a household that didn't have a computer. Like computers existed, but it was not a part of everyday life. We got our first computer when I was eight. And if you had asked me, even when I was 20 years old, like what is interesting about the time that you live in, I would not have been able to articulate to you, like, oh, I live in the age of the computer. It took a little bit more distance for me because I was so inside of it to realize that, oh, actually, I am living in one of the most incredible transformational times in human history. I just couldn't see it at the age of 20, right? So one of the, one of the areas where this is very true is in um, talking about genetics and genomics. The cost to sequence a genome went from $100 million in 2001 to $1,000 in 2016. So that is a decrease in cost of 100,000 times in 15 years. And you can see the, the green dots are showing how many genomes have been sequenced just in the last four years. It's exponential the number. So, and, and what this allows us to do, I mean, clearly this has huge implications for human health, et cetera, but it also has tons of implications for plant breeding and for understanding like what, and, and addressing the barriers and the challenges that we're facing. Can you, um, can you identify genes in coffee that help the plant withstand drought, that help the plant uh, make use of too much water? that uh, make a Robusta plant that can maybe do these things a little more naturally than Arabica can taste amazing. It's entirely possible that in the world of 2050, we won't be drinking Arabica. We will be drinking Robusta that tastes awesome because breeders have been able to unlock some of the, the things that seem like um, you know, the quality and robustness of agronomic traits are mutually exclusive, that's not necessarily true. So um, this, this kind of dynamic, um, the incredible advances in computing, also in communications that have come along with that. Like, the emergence of the specialty coffee industry 
is in, was in a very significant way enabled by communications technology. The fact that a roaster can talk to a coffee farmer like regularly through Facebook, that has significantly enabled direct trade to be what it is. So all of these things are super interesting and exciting and also a little bit scary sometimes. <laughs> um, but they help, us, they help us ask interesting questions about what is the future gonna be like. Um, some of the things that we're thinking about are exactly this question about Arabica and Robusta. Um, Robusta tends to be seen as the less, um, as a lower quality drink. It is a lower quality drink um, according to kind of current market standards. Um, but it is more robust, right? That's how it got its name. So is there a way to unlock some of the limitations there? Can we make Robusta taste better? Can we make Arabica more resilient? Um, what are these future origins gonna be and what are the challenges gonna be in them? Political challenges, um, agroecological challenges, um, et cetera. So I don't, like, when you talk about the future, you always end up with more questions than you have answers. I don't have any answers about what the future is gonna be like, um, but we are very interested in asking the question and in trying to do the best that we can to kind of <laughs> aim the ship, the research and development agriculture ship, um, such that we are benefiting the highest number of farmers possible and also delivering the results that industry needs. Um, and, and just to say, like that is why World Coffee Research was created um, in 2012. It was because the coffee industry, and by that I mean um, a lot of specialty coffee roasters who were involved in our early days, but also some bigger mass market um, roasters and also organizations like the SCA, um, the European and Japanese versions of the SCA um, kind of got together and recognized that there was this huge gap that we have to be thinking about what the future of coffee agriculture is. We have to be addressing the challenges that are urgent on the ground now and also you know, trying to forecast what the challenges of the future are gonna be. When we started in 2012, we were talking about climate change, but it was very, um, it was like one thing. Now it's the thing, right? It is what is driving most of the thinking and planning that we are doing is a recognition that um, the climate of the future is gonna look different than it does now and that's gonna have a huge impact. So even in five short years, the dynamic and the, the energy around these future discussions has changed. Um, we now also, five years ago, didn't have F1 hybrids growing in the field with results from farmers with 90 plus scores and cup of excellence competitions. So that's also really incredible. I mean, to me, that's the most exciting thing that's happened in coffee in the last five years is the sort of proof in the ground that these new varieties are really working. They are really going to be transformational for coffee farmers. Um, so you have, you have the scary, sad stuff and then you have this like incredible potential um, and that's always what the future is about is holding those two things in tension um, so we we are having these conversations actively we want you to be part of those conversations so for international coffee day we're running a little campaign called the future of coffee and we and that's what this video is about we really want to hear your voices talking about you know the future of coffee whether it's about agriculture or something else so um, if you want right now, if you're like on Twitter, you can check out, I just posted a video and a question, like what do you think the future of coffee is gonna be? What, do you, what are your hopes, what are your fears about that? And we really would love um, to have your voice be part of that conversation because in a very significant way, 
you are the future of coffee, right? You are emergent professionals. You are the ones who have put your flag in the ground and said, I want to I want to do this work for the rest of my life. Um, some of you. <laughs> um, and and that matters. Like your curiosity about these questions matters, your attentiveness to the issues, even if you're not, you know, going to go become a PhD coffee breeder, although I highly encourage that if anybody in the room has that inclination. Uh, we need more coffee breeders. Um, your, your curiosity, your attention to this stuff matters, um, and it will continue to matter. So that is all that I have to say through the microphone, but I'm really happy to take questions. I think we have a little bit of time for that. Please, round of applause yeah. for Hannah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you're going to get your chance to ask some questions. Um, but I'm really lucky that I can ask questions and I can always I can always get it straight in there. So, fantastic presentation, Hannah. I kind of, I, I feel, as an industry, we're starting to know more about world coffee research by presentations mm -hmm. like this, but also, you know, the way that uh, I think world coffee research has been reaching out quite a lot in the last 12, 18 months to yeah. try and get the interest of, uh, of baristas and coffee shop owners as well as the roasters and, and of course consumers. I, I, as I was watching the presentation, I was writing down notes here. I'm not writing <laughs> notes. Um, and the one thing that strikes me about the F1 program mm -hmm. that you're doing is that it reminds me very much of some of the GM work that's been done in, mm -hmm. for instance, in like something like corn. Yep. Um, where there's, because you can't use the seed stock of an F1 to yep. grow more, so you will basically hold the yep. keys to new planting at a later date. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So I don't want to like go too deep into the science, but I'm really happy to do that on the side. But okay, so an F1 hybrid is not, let me just very clearly say, the F1 hybrids that are out there now, the ones that we're working on, they are not genetically modified in any way. So it's using traditional breeding techniques, and what all you're doing is taking two different kinds of parents and crossing them and using the baby and stopping. In traditional breeding, you would take the baby and then you would grow it and then you would take the babies of those and you would grow those and you would take the babies of those and you would grow those. And you go out about six or seven generations and by the time you get to the end of that process, you have something that's very stable. The variety, when you take the seeds from those plants or the seeds of those plants, they will reproduce true to type. So they will look like the mother and the father and have the same traits. That's what you want in a variety that's commercially available to farmers. You want them to be able to like say, okay, oh, this is Bourbon. I know what I'm getting with Bourbon, right? High cup quality potential. It's not going to be coffee leaf rust resistant. It, you know, grows tall. That's good because I have shade. Like it's going to be reliable and you know what you're getting. With F1 hybrids, you stop after that first generation. You have a very reliable plant at the first generation. When you make the cross between the mother and the father, the baby is 95 times out of 100 going to be exactly the same. Every time you make the cross, you'll get the same result. Okay. The problem is if you take the second generation, the babies of the F1, they will do what's called segregating. This is like basic laws of genetics. So they will not look like their parent. They will look more like the, the grandma or the grandpa. Some of them will look like the parent. You select those, you plant the babies, you select those. That's, again, going back into the traditional breeding. So you can 
get a really reliable, really true to type, really high performing variety if you stop at the F1. The problem is, if you take those seeds, you won't have the same result that you were expecting. And so that's not good for farmers, right? You take the seeds, and all of a sudden, this thing that was producing 30% more yield and you know had a certain cup quality, it, the babies aren't going to be the same. So it's not that you can't use the seed. It's that it's not a great idea. It's not going to be reliable for farmers. You're allowed to use the seed, but it's not it's not a good idea. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, and uh, I kind of I use the GM thing because I understand. Yeah. But it's like there are some gatekeepers of seed mm -hmm. stock in lots of industries. True, yes. And yes. are there protections? Now, we know World Cup yeah. Research are lovely, amazing, wonderful people at the moment. But yeah. in 2050, when you're retiring <laughs> and everybody else is retiring, some yeah. evil you know, uh, villain comes along and holds yeah. the seed stock. Are, are there some yeah. safeguards for producers who say, OK, I'm going to invest in going along this route because it's yeah. going to give me these fantastic yields and good cop quality yeah. that in that 30 years when it comes to replanting the you know world coffee research is still going to be you know these are available these yeah, are accessible yeah, yeah. are there some safeguards within the organization for that the, so internally um Yes, but I will just say we don't we haven't actually commercially released any any varieties yet so I think we'll be really robust like we have our ideas about how that's going to work. We'll see when we get there what the actual fact is. We will probably go the route of protecting our varieties, like filing for plant breeders' rights. I'm not talking about patenting. This gets really arcane. Um, but there's something called pla plant breeders' rights that allows the breeder to charge a royalty if someone wants to commercialize it. So if you're a nursery and you want to mass produce the variety that I created, you could pay me a royalty and then you could do that. That's typically how it would work. Um, that is just beginning to exist in coffee. So for most of the history of coffee, everything has been kind of in the public domain. Um, the result of that, though, is that nobody knows what they have. It's all a giant jumble. So most coffee farmers, some of them, if they're very sophisticated, will actually really know what they have. Many of them think they know what they have, but they don't. Um, and we can do genetic testing now to check that, and it's very true. You see this a lot with, for example, geisha, right? Because it's so, it's so kind of high quality. Um, some of it is um, intentionally fraudulently sold as geisha when it's not, and some of it is just, you know, people are sort of confused. So um, there are good reasons to have systems that protect plant breeder rights, right? When, when a breeder is able to earn a small royalty on the work that they've done, it enables them to keep doing the work and create new varieties. That's what intellectual property protections are in general. Like, I think most people would agree that if you write you know, a really impressive piece of code or you write a book or you make a painting, that you should have copyright for that, that that does belong to you. So that is the concept of plant breeders' rights. It is not meant to be um, a system where you are preventing farmers from being able to do what they need to be able to do, but it is meant to create a a system that is sustainable for the continual improvement of coffee, which is not to say that you couldn't, there could be in the future a situation where um, a private company gets involved in breeding and they are um, patenting, that's a particular kind of protection a variety, and if a farmer were to take the seed from that and plant it, that they could get in trouble if they did that. That has existed in other forms of agriculture. It's possible it could exist in coffee. It is, at the moment, 
so highly unlikely because then you are in court battles in like different countries around the world and the, the cost of actually waging those battles is so high. So um, the, what I also imagine being part of the future of coffee, I hope, is that we get to the point where there are so many people breeding coffee that there are like, I don't know, I mean, I live in Oregon, so everybody's talking about pot right now, but there's this awesome project um, in the weed world called the Open Seed Project. And the idea is that these breeders are creating varieties, putting them out there, and if anybody uses one of those varieties to create a new variety, the new variety has to be open source as well. Like, I, would, I think there's room for all of it. And I, I long for a future in coffee where there's so much innovation, there's so much of this work happening, that there are probably some companies that are, that are doing that, and that there, but there's so much diversity and so many options for farmers um, that they just can, that, that, there, that it can all fit in. I think that's a big worry that, you know, the producers, you know, need to have that open source approach yep. um, to, to seeds, you know, seed stock because they have control at the moment and what we're looking at doing is disempowering them by not having their own they seed have, stock. They have control, um, but they don't in this yeah. sense because so many of them have no idea what they have mm. or are frankly, like in many cases, being hoodwinked. Like they think they're buying a variety that's resistant to coffee leaf rust and it's not, and that's, that is a tremendous waste of potential, the plant's potential, the farmer's potential, when they get unhealthy seeds or um, variety that isn't what they think it is or isn't gonna do what they think it does, um, that's a huge disservice to the producer. So there's, these things are intention. There's not one right answer and one wrong answer, but, but they're both important to be thinking about. I understand that World Coffee Research does um, research and development in agriculture, but I'm kind of stuck on the slide where you talked about cost of production and how coffee farming is not profitable for a lot of coffee farmers. Um, and one thing that I worry about in coffee is that farming really will only be profitable in scale. And so is there any conversation in World Coffee Research about making coffee production viable for smallholders still and yeah. not sort of going the route We talk about of, it all the time. I mean, yeah. I'll be honest, I think consolidation is coming for coffee farming in many places. Um, but yeah, I mean, for example, we are working on, a, we have a, a corner of our breeding program is all about agroforestry. So how can we develop varieties that are better for smallholders that have shade? Because that's gonna be really important for climate change in the future, right? So it's, very, it's something we talk about all the time. Like when we're evaluating varieties, the thing, the thing we're evaluating is, will this, be prof will this move the needle on profitability? for farmers, but it's gonna be a big tent, right? Because consolidation is gonna happen and those farmers are also gonna need things that work for them. Right. Yeah. Why don't we take some questions from the audience? Well, we've actually got time for one question okay. <laughs> because we've took too much time, so I'm really sorry. But would anybody like to ask Anna a question um, about the presentation, about World Coffee Research, anything she said today? Oh, don't be shy. You don't look like a shy lot. Here we go, thank you. So, you're talking about the systems in coffee and how they're not, they haven't been very well organized. Um, I was kind of curious about how are they getting more organized and what are the challenges of coffee being so spread out in these types of countries? Yeah. Um, I could, I could, under, I could answer that in like twelve hours. Um, I mean, no, no, no. You can, have, can we try like one minute? <laughs> one minute. There are some countries like Colombia that are very well organized. There's 
problems there too, but they have very good efficient systems for doing research and getting that out to farmers and helping farmers with agronomic support. Um, it's part of the development process in a way. Um, and so, you know, as countries modernize and as they set up university systems and all of that kind of stuff, some, sometimes it often, it will come. Um, sometimes organization just comes because a country has decided, like, we're gonna be a coffee country. Ethiopia is very organized in their coffee sector. It's very arcane in some ways and frustrating to, it can be frustrating to work with for people um, from outside of Ethiopia, but it's very organized. Um, civil wars tend to be anathema to um, organization, right? And so to some extent, disorganization is always going to occur in places that have political instability, which is many coffee producing countries. So you have to, you have to work together, right? It's why it's important that governments be involved in conversations with the private sector, with um, research, with development organizations. Like, it, it, it really does take collective action to move the needle on this stuff. Well, Hannah, you're gonna be here all day. Um, so grab some time with Hannah. Um, go do the, uh, the video thing. I, I know what the the gift is, if you like, and it's amazing. So that's the only reason I want to get up there and do a video. Is it's going to be uh, it's going to be great to see it come out as well. Hannah, absolutely fantastic talk. Thank you so much. Big round of applause, please, for Hannah Nushwanda.